everyone to the first in-season edition of the Fantasy Alarm Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I am your host, Colby Conway, at Colby R. Conway on Twitter. And with me, as always, at The Salesman on Twitter, Matt Sells. So, Matt, we are in-season. It's nice to talk to you in-season and not preseason and spring training like we have been. So, how are things going for you, just in terms of, gener- you know, just generally speaking and being a Nats fan? Uh, things are going pretty well. You know, we got baseball back, so I spent this weekend – um, you know, watching baseball and NASCAR and stayed up late for F1. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a glorious thing to see my MLB.TV feed completely full of games that I can watch. Um, so that's, it. you know, weather's turning nice here. We got baseball back. Hard to be down on things right now. And when it comes to, like, your favorite teams and everything, it's all in the eye. You know, they say beauty's in the eye of the beholder. If you ask me, Pittsburgh's 1-0 because the season really starts on, you know, Sundays. Those are the games that matter. You know, Thursday, Saturday, who cares? You know, it doesn't matter what happened in those games. So, Pittsburgh's 1-0 for all intents and purposes. But we got a packed show here. News and notes, some things to watch. And we're going to talk about some level of concerns with some players that you might be rather interested in just because you drafted them or they were guys that you were big on coming into the year. So I'm going to actually have post some questions to Matt about what are his levels of concern with certain players. We're going to get to that later on in the show. But first off, we're going to start with John Gray in Texas made his debut looked pretty decent for the most part came off a little bit at the end, but he did face Toronto four strikeouts only allowed three earned runs. And maybe the bigger thing is that he didn't allow a home run against Toronto, which that's going to be a thing this year is if you can make it without letting a ball leave the yard against you against Toronto. But then, of course, I believe it was the next day, 10-day IL with a blister on his throwing hand. Blisters tend to be a little finicky in that they can pop up here and there. But my guess is that he probably won't miss much more than the minimum 10 days right now. So probably two or so starts. But there's going to be some concern with it lingering on a little bit there. So what are your thoughts here with John Gray's injury and even his first start of the year? I thought his first start was good and that he didn't allow a home run to um, Toronto, who then put on an offensive show in the back half of that game. Um, you know, the, the blister is a little bit concerning. Um, I don't know if it's the new ball, perhaps, or lack of sticky stuff or getting used to a new pitching environment in Texas. Um, but, you know, it's it's not one of those things that I consider to be – all that serious. I mean, Rich Hill has made a career out of pitching and gets blisters every year. Um, you know, I, so I'm sure they'll sort it out. Yeah. He's eligible to come back on April 19th. So that's probably two starts, which is a little disheartening, um, for where he was going, you know, and what people were expecting of him, but it's a fairly minor thing. It's not, it's not as bad as what some other guys have landed on the uh, IL with. So, yeah, unlike unlike John Gray, Blake Snell is going to the injured injured list with left adductor tightness. Uh, this is something tightness gives you a little bit of maybe optimism in terms of what it could be. However, when you consider the adductor and how important it is into the overall motion that a pitcher must go through, there is going to be some cause for concern there for me. So I am much more worried about Snell than I am Gray at this point. But what does what does Matt Sell say on the matter? Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they listed it as a groin initially. So that gives you some, some pause um, because of how important that particular part of the body is for a pitcher's delivery. 
um, whether it be the drive leg or the plant leg, there's a lot of twisting and, and important, you know, parts of the delivery that happen as they transfer all of the uh, power from their legs up to their arm. So, you know, we're all, we were already concerned with Snell coming into the season because of his lackluster innings load, shall we say, uh, the last, I don't know, what, three years, basically. So... I wasn't really all that high on Snell to begin with, and now that he's got this, yes, it's just tightness. However, this could be a lingering thing, right? We've seen groins be very tricky for guys in the past, whether it be hitters, pitchers, uh, you name it. They can linger, and that's not what we need for Blake Snell. We do not need him to have lingering stuff and give any excuse in the world to only go out and pitch four innings. Um, so it is... You know, some some muscle aches and and pains shouldn't be that uncommon early in the season. But for Blake Snell, there is a heightened level of concern here. Well, and ultimately, that's what we talked about coming into the season. When someone like Lance McCullers in the preseason or in spring training had an issue, what was our biggest concern? It wasn't necessarily with him. It was the fact that he's an off-injured guy already coming into a year injured. And essentially now it's another injury, but you're absolutely right with Snell. Like look at the last couple of years after he hit 180 innings back in 2018, we're talking 107 in 2019. He did 50 in 2020 shortened seasons to take that for what it's worth. And then just 128 last year, making 27 starts. He's only made more than 30 starts once in his entire career. And he won us how young when he did it. So, you know, <laughs> if he could only stay healthy, they say, um, but, yeah, it's just a level of concern we don't need to deal with right now. So if you have Snell, um, I might be dropping him already, to be honest. I don't know if I can quite go there because most of my teams are a little bit pitcher needy. So I might have to keep him in the hopper there for my teams. But, hey, I understand, especially in shallower leagues, every roster spot is critical. And at this point, we're talking tightness. And I don't want to extrapolate this to other issues, but – a lot of people, I know it's a different body part too, but a lot of people that end up getting Tommy John, it starts with forearm tightness. I'm just saying, I'm not saying this is anything major, but tightness, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. So just something to watch here moving forward. And then two other pitchers that we saw go to the aisle, Ryan Yarbrough and Anibal Sanchez. Uh, anything of note uh, with these two guys? Um, Not necessarily. I don't think Ryan Yarbrough had a guaranteed role. Like, I mean, he had a role, right? But we don't really know exactly what it is. He might be opening some days. He might be the bulk guy a couple of days. He might be just a middle reliever. So that's less of a concern. Also, his numbers weren't all that great last year. So I'm not sure how much uh, people were drafting him that much. Anibal Sanchez... You know, the Nats signed him to a minor league contract. He did make their rotation. He was supposed to be their, I guess, number five starter for what is, at this point, an already very shallow rotation. So uh, Josh Rogers is going to come up and take his spot in the rotation as the uh, Nats head down to play Atlanta for a few days. So, you know, that, that's a little bit of a stinger, though. I don't know how many people were really paying that much attention to Sanchez. He's not a big strikeout guy anymore. He can finagle his way into a five- or six-inning start, but there's not a lot of wins there. There's not a lot of ratio help there. There's not a lot of strikeouts. So it's just a more of a real-life blow to the Nats, who already don't have a very deep rotation because they're still waiting on Strasburg to get back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all in all, it's not, it, it's not that much of a concern right now. 
Now, Matt, the one of the series that we saw beginning of the year here was the Brewers Cubs and coming into it, that series, I was very excited for these Milwaukee starters. And think about it this way. Their top arms, Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, Freddie Peralta, all being drafted relatively early. All intents and purposes, the Cubs have a lineup that is probably reminiscent of a team that is looking to rebuild with a lot of, yes, they say Suzuki and everything like that and Wilson Contreras, but mostly a real rebuilding lineup from the looks of it. And what do we get? We get Brandon Woodruff only going three and two thirds. His first inning was I don't even know what word you want to use for that. Walk, hit batter, walk, walk, walk. Corbin Burns posted a 14% walk rate in that game. And Freddie Peralta, 22% walk rate. Those three starters had a 16% walk rate in that series against Chicago for those first three games amongst those starters. So talk to me here about this. I don't expect, when you look at their numbers from last year and recent years, Woodruff and Burns aren't big walk guys. Probably more a blip on the radar than anything with those two. But is this Chicago lineup, just more willing to take the fourth ball than maybe another team is going to be? Or is this just first start, short in spring training, probably a blip on the radar? We're going to look into this too much. I think it's a little bit of both, to be to be honest there. I don't think that if I recall correctly, I don't think that Woodruff and Burns got that much work in in spring training games, right? They were probably pitching on the backfields, maybe in minor league sim games. Stuff like that. But I don't think that they got that much work um, in spring training because they needed the Brewers need to see who else they have. Right. Clearly, Woodruff and Burns are not hurting for rotation spots. Neither is Freddie Peralta. So I think it's a couple of things. One, it was cold in Chicago this weekend. Like if you look at the fans, they're all sitting there with stocking caps and jackets and whatnot. And these guys all. Uh, had spring training in uh, Arizona, so the temp change is one thing. The balls are different this year. Uh, they're cracking down on sticky stuff again. So I think it's a little bit of everything, right? The the Cubs lineup knows that they're going to have to be patient in order to put up runs, okay? David Ross is a big fan of being patient and working counts and all that. So I think we're going to see a some more walks from the Cubs in general. And I do think it was just early season hiccups, transitioning back to cold weather, not having a lot of grip. The umps this weekend I've seen have been a little ticky-tack on calls uh, both ways, right? Some have very tight strike zones, some have wider strike zones, and then a lot of dudes have just been inconsistent because the umps are still getting used to seeing, you know, live pitching like this for the first time. Two, I mean, I know they did spring training, but still. Uh, you're seeing a lot of guys in spring training you're never going to see in a, in a major league game this year. So I think it's just a little bit of everything. I'm not all that concerned about it. And then one guy here, moving away from team, you know, guys that are struggling, two real positives that we've seen. I'm starting to regret not having any shares of Luis Robert. I think it's going to come back to not necessarily bite me. It's not that I was out on him. It was just other guys that were around there at the time maybe seemed perhaps a little bit more interesting but we're looking here through his first 13 at bats he hasn't homered yet so take that for what it's worth but he also hasn't struck out yet and back in 2020 that was a bit of an issue for him but he does have two stolen bases hitting 385 and 847 OPS he's just putting the ball in play and they're letting him run already I mean I for the same reasons we don't want to overreact too much with like the Milwaukee starters are we okay to overreact big time to Robert's start? 
Um, I mean, he did say he wanted to run more in spring training, right? He did. He was quoted as saying his goal was what thirty steals this year. I think is what his goal was, like over thirty steals or something. Um, so he's quite clearly on his way to that. The power hasn't fully shown up yet, but again, early season is tough to get power when it's in cold weather and windy conditions and stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't know exactly what we do if we overreact to Robert. Like, are we trading? Like, is this for trading? Because he's clearly not available in basically any league, right? So I'm not trading the house for Robert right now. If I need outfield depth and and a big outfield bat, sure, I'll make a trade. But I'm not going to trade, like, an ace pitcher to go get Robert. Like, he's the next coming of a... 40 40 dude um so i like if he's on your roster you're quite happy with what he's done so far right if you don't have him i don't know how much you give up to go get him because right now the price is going to be pretty high so it's kind of one of those things where if you missed out you're just going to kind of have to eat it for a little bit i think i think you're right too and i mean it's certainly exciting nonetheless because he's been a guy who I don't want to quite say it's like the, the the Byron Buxton level yet, but back in 2020, 11 bombs and nine stolen bases in 56 games. 2021, it was, hey, just imagine this guy over a full season. Unfortunately, we, we didn't quite get it. Hopefully now we can get him for a full season here for 2022. I think you're right. The price to trade for him now is just, it's, it's not going to behoove your fantasy team, even if he continues this insane run for a little bit, because you're going to have to give up so damn much to get him. So if he's right. a guy that you have him, it looks good, but I mean, early returns here, because he was pretty, if I remember correctly, like mid to late second round, maybe someone pushed him up in the early parts if he was going there, maybe late third, depending on number of teams. At the very least, three games in, for whatever you want to make from that, he is looking pretty darn good and providing quite the return there. Another starter that I wasn't very in on him per se, but in Los Angeles, Noah Syndergaard had a pretty decent first outing. And it wasn't exactly for the reasons that many might have thought. What did we see? He's using that changeup a good bit. He's not over. He's not trying to overpower like he was with the Mets. It was, we're going to rear back. We're going to let this puppy fly, and we're going to aim to miss bats. If we go five innings with 13 strikeouts, that's cool. That wasn't necessarily the case with what he did in his opener. Five and a third with just one strikeout. I don't remember, I don't remember the last time, and I know it's been a while since we've seen him, but Noah Syndergaard having just one strikeout in an outing. So talk to me about Syndergaard's debut with the Angels. And, I mean, arguably, since we haven't seen him in a couple of years, it's really the new-look Syndergaard. Yeah, so, you know, a lot was made this offseason of him signing a one-year, I think it was, what, $23 million deal with the Angels on a prove-it deal. Right? If he stays healthy and he puts up solid numbers, he'll get a multi-year deal this coming offseason. That being said, I think everybody knew that he was going to have to switch his pitch mix up because he couldn't just sit there and try to pump 98 to 100. His arm clearly can't take it. Every time he's done that, he's gotten himself injured and missed, you know, this last time about a year and a half. So seeing him mix pitches better was nice. I think the strikeouts are going to come. I think all he's trying to do right now is be a more efficient pitcher. Yes, strikeouts are sexy. That's what we're all taught, but to be on to, to, you know, to boil it down, what's the goal of a pitcher? Not allow runs. Does not matter how you do it. You do not want to allow runs. You want to keep your team in the game. 
that's basically what he did. He looked pretty solid. Um, and by the way, we'll throw this nugget out there. Max Scherzer had zero whiffs on his four-seam fastball against the Nationals. That's the first time in 12 years he's had a start where he's gotten zero whiffs on his four-seam fastball. So, you know, Syndergaard went out there with one strikeout, but he was efficient. Scherzer went out there, was efficient, put up a decent strikeout total, but got zero whiffs on his main pitch. So I think what we're starting to see is pitchers, the the pendulum is swinging back to where it was pre just go out there and pump below, pump below, pump below, pump below, and you'll be fine. Right. The Nats broadcast made a point of the fact that they have a middle reliever who throws 88 to 92. And they're like, that's unusual because normally you're getting these relievers coming in and throwing 98, but this guy's effective because he slows bats down. Guys are not used to it. So I think we're coming to an age with pitchers where they're going back to mixing pitches better and keeping guys off balance. And I think that's what we're going to see from Noah Syndergaard the rest of the season. And with Syndergaard, too, looking here at his career uh, numbers, he has had two games without a strikeout, yet he only went an inning in each of those contests. So the other, only other time he had this few of strikeouts in a start, he logged six innings against the Giants in June of 2015 with just two strikeouts. That was the last time it's something that low. I agree with you. I think the strikeouts will come. And you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the Angels would be just as happy if Syndergaard's going six innings every time with two or three strikeouts rather than, you know, five and a third with eight or nine strikeouts. Sure, they've made some improvements to that pen, so a shortened game necessarily won't kill them. But, again, $21 million for a pitcher. Ideally, he's going more than, you know, four and two-thirds, five and a third inning there for you. Right. The other thing is the rest of that rotation, aside from, I guess, you know, Otani, they're going to get what they're, you know, expected to be the ace, Right. You've got Patrick Sandoval, who's supposed to have a pretty good year, but you don't necessarily bank on that yet. Reed Detmers is in there, but he's a rookie and unproven. So you've got a fairly shallow rotation. They would take six innings from Syndergaard every time because they're going to have to use that pen for other guys. So I I really don't think they need like 10 strikeouts a a day from from Syndergaard. I think they just need the I think you're right. I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. And again, by the end of the year, I'm not, I don't know if Syndergaard's going to quite get to a strikeout per inning. He's not going to be a 6.5 K per nine guy with time figures out the repertoire, how he's pitching. He's going to be, I don't know. What do you think? Maybe somewhere in that eight to eight and a half K per nine range. Or do you think he gets to a strikeout per inning? I don't think he gets to a strikeout per inning. Um, I think he's just trying to make it through a season healthy. And if that's what his, is I don't think he's going to be pumping uh, for for strikeouts. I think he just wants to do efficiency and make it healthy. So yeah, I'm in that eight to eight and a half range, which is fine because nobody drafted him as a number two starter, right? Everybody drafted him as like a number four starter. So eight strikeouts per nine for a number four starter is exactly what you want. Absolutely. And then a couple things just kind of here to watch, maybe monitor or just kind of get your opinion on here. First off is these pitch counts. I'll tell you what, for someone who's playing DFS and prize picks and underdog, 
these pitch counts are killing me. Like, fortunately, I got lucky with, you know, a couple strikeout process where someone went nuts, like, with Rodon. I mean, I think he was at six and a half, and he had that by what felt like the eighth battery face. But And he actually logged a decent amount of pitches. But off the top of your head, can you name how many starting pitchers logged more than 90 pitches here through the first couple of days of the season? Um... It's got to be like maybe two. It was five. Now, here's the interesting part. Robbie Ray, Chris Bassett, you Darvish, they've been around for a while. I get it. They can get there. Cincinnati lets Hunter Green go out there and throw 92 in his debut. So interesting there. And then Frankie Montas got 92. There were five pitchers that logged more than 90 pitches in their opening start. Now, some of the frustrating ones, looking at it here, you got guys like, Marcus Stroman's been around for a while, and they're at 79 pitches. Gossman went for about 80. Sonny Gray only 76. Nola only 76, even though he was throwing quite well. Corbin got the 76. I understand we had a shortened spring training. Some guys may not have gotten quite ramped up to where they like to yet, but how, how much longer do you think until we're seeing guys get, get a full leash? Like Some of those guys like Rodon at this point, he's got some injury concerns, so maybe they kind of keep him slowed down a little bit, but when am I going to be able to set a DFS lineup and comfortably know that I'm going to get a guy to get me a hundred pitches? I don't know, man. I, I don't like that answer. I don't try it again. I don't like that answer. I don't like it. I, I don't know. I mean, our very own John and Pemba was, was complaining in our group chat the other day when I think Eovaldi who pitched for the, one of the Red Sox pitchers got taken out at like 64 pitches or something and had a shutout through four innings or something, I think. Um, so, you know, I'm still going to go with it's early in the season. They've got 28 guys on a roster right now for a reason. So I think a lot of teams use that for bullpen guys so they can basically just abuse them for April. And then when the cuts have to happen, then the starters are set to go for full workloads. Um, I also think that teams are very cognizant of were they pressure-filled pitches? Were they? And I know that sounds weird in opening weekends, but if you have a lot of um, you know guys on the bases, a lot of traveling on the base path there, that adds to the stress of the pitches and higher stress pitches take more out of you than lower stress pitches. So, you know, you'll see a lot of guys go, well, this was 60 playoff pitches, which is the same as like 85 regular season pitches, right? Cause they're high stress. So I think it's a little bit of it's early season. It's the first start. Nobody got their full workload in, in spring training because of all the, you know, hullabaloo that happened before the season could get going. And I think also part of it is the guys, if you're going to make an investment like this in a starting pitcher, you want the best, healthiest guy you can have out there. And if that's allowing him to go five innings every fifth day, no matter what the pitch count is, then so be it. Because, you know, you're only going to have, we talked about this in the, in the preseason, right? How many teams can you go through their starting rotation and feel comfortable past starter number three? Even for teams like the Dodgers and the and, and Toronto and the Braves and especially Tampa and even the Brewers, teams we all expect to be competing. 
there's not a lot of depth there after the the top three pitchers. So if you're going to have to blow your bullpen two out of every five days, then I think, you know, getting a solid five innings is probably fine with these teams right now. Well, they might be cognizant of their teams and their situations. They are not being very cognizant of my DFS lineups and my prize pick <laughs> props and my underdog props. I, underdog props. I know it's not all about me, Matt, but it's a little bit more about me sometimes. You know what I mean? Let's just be <laughs> honest here. So it's it's interesting nonetheless to watch. But another player that I want to touch on here, we mentioned it a week or two ago, if I remember correctly. Jazz Chisel owners, he's got a little power. He's got a little speed. But through the first three games, we've seen him batting ninth, sitting against a lefty, and then batting eighth. I don't like the look of that here, these early returns. I know it's early. There's teams probably still trying to find their identities and messing around with stuff. So let me pose it to you this way. Which are you more concerned with, the fact that in his two starts, he's hit at the bottom third of the order at eighth or ninth, or that he just simply did not play against a left-hander? Well... So this is a tough one for me to answer. I obviously kept Jazz Chisholm in my big keeper league, uh, hoping for similar results to what we got last year, which was nearly a 2020 season, expecting him to go over that this year if everything plays out. I will say that with the addition of the DH to a National League lineup, I am less concerned about a guy hitting ninth in the National League than I w- or eighth than I was previously. Because especially with the way the Marlins are using Jorge Soler right now, they're hitting him leadoff, which means if Jazz Chisholm comes up as the first or second guy in an inning, he's got Jorge Soler behind him. He's got some of their other big bats in the second and third spot in the order behind him, which means he could see pitches to hit. And hitting ninth doesn't take away speed, so he could still steal bags. He hit a two-run shot. Um to win the Marlins the opening day game, if I'm not mistaken. Now, as for him sitting against lefties, I kind of have a little bit of an issue with this. I get last year was not great if you look at righty-lefty splits. However, if you look at his entire career, his career against righties, he's hitting 242. You want to take a stab as to what his career number against lefties is? It's 242. You're probably wanting me to say something low. I'm going to say it's not too far off. Let's go with like 237. You're close. It's 240. That was close. In about half as many at-bats against lefties as righties. Now, power number's not there. He's hit like five career homers off of lefties, and he's got, I don't know, close to 20 off of righties. So that stinks, okay? But if you're just talking about a guy getting on base – why are we benching a dude who's hitting two spot two literally two points lighter against a lefty than a righty? Now, the other thing is you want him to be an everyday player, put him in against lefties and let him figure it out. Don Mattingly's an old school guy. I don't, you know, Jazz already went off on Twitter and it's apparently been handled. And Donnie Baseball said, Well, we were playing everybody opening day weekend, and he knew that and whatever. Well, Okay, but the stats don't exactly back back up that claim. Um, and you can't tell me that taking a, a 2020 threat out of your lineup is a, is a good managerial sense in any particular way. So do I expect them to be a, li- a little bit higher in the 
in the batting order going forward? I don't know, because he doesn't really walk all that much either. So, you know, I, I again, I don't have a problem with him hitting eighth or ninth if he's going to if he's producing down there. The bigger problem for me is hitting against lefties because I just don't see why it makes any sense. And when he didn't play against a lefty that day, too, the team put John Birdie in there, who has a career 211 batting average against right. lefties, which exactly. is much worse that's than the other. That's the other thing, because Fangraphs, and I noticed this before the season started, because I, I went on, I was putting together the projected lineups for our site, and, you know, I was using a few different sources, and Fangraphs highlights guys that they think are going to be in platoons, and they highlighted Jazz Chisholm as a platoon only for righties. Right, he's going to sit against lefties, and then they had John Birdie as the guy that's likely replacing him. And then I looked, and I was like, "Well, John Birdie's actually a worse hitter against lefties than Jazz Chisholm, so that doesn't make a lot of sense." Like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Nope, I am right there with you. But one thing that does make a lot of sense to me, ever since the AJ Pollock trade, it made Gavin Lux look like quite a value in drafts. He's cracked the lineup in each of the Dodgers' first three games, all three against the Rockies. Sure, hitting eighth or ninth, but we got two starts at second base and a start in left field. So as someone who's drafted Gavin Lux a good bit, we're going to need the numbers to back it up as the season goes on. But at the very least, he is shaping up to be a nice draft day value. And again, for the kind of the same reason with Chisholm, I'm sure he's going to hit eighth or ninth, but I mean, good God, if he gets on base, Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, and Trey Turner at the top of the lineup, yes, please. Right. I mean, he's going to get pitches to hit based on how loaded the top of that order is. And, you know, people are going to hate that I say this, but Lux is probably easily the worst everyday bat in that lineup. Like, say what you will. I know there's a lot of people who are very high on Gavin Lux. I'm kind of middle of the road on him, but you can't honestly tell me that he's anywhere better than the eighth best bat in that lineup on a regular basis. That lineup is super deep and super good. So um, his, his his thing has always been defense that has kept him off the field. Um, using him in the util spot, maybe that solves it. We'll see. He does have quite a lot of pop, but you're going to have to watch a little bit for the average. A little bit. Because um, sometimes when he's confident, he gets a little bit more free swinging than he probably should. But still, good good opening day returns here. Early season starts there for Lux. Hopefully that can carry on. And looking here at the overall stats for the 2022 season, I don't know about you, but before the season started, I said, you know, after the first couple of games of the season, I would not be shocked if Stephen Kwan, Matt Olson, Mark uh, Canna, and Jeff McNeil were leading the league in hits. And I'll be damned. Look at me. I was absolutely right with those four. Um, if you don't think I put that out there, that's fine. You don't have to believe me. I, I knew I said it somewhere, but talk to me about Stephen Kwan here. And am I taking the cheap, the cheap or the, the cheap way out by basically saying he's the, he's the younger Michael Brantley? Um, no, that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable comp. He's more of a professional hitter than anything. So he's going to wait for his pitch. He's going to work the count. He's going to make good contact. There's going to be some power there. Not a ton. There's going to be some speed there. Not necessarily a ton. But, yeah, I think a comp to Michael Brantley is a fair comp. And if you look at what Michael Brantley's done in his career, he's more of a professional hitter than anything, right? He's either had double-digit homers or double-digit speeds or steals each of the last several seasons. But that's not, like, anything to write home about these days. But what he does have is a very good batting average. You would take that from Stephen Kwan, a good batting average, 
and a smattering of homer and homers and steals and get an everyday outfielder that you can count on. Perfectly fine. Yep. And, and he just had a five-hit game. He's hit safely in each of the first three games to begin the year. So he's hitting 800 right now. Obviously, he's not going to hold that. But do you think Quan ends with a 300 or better batting average in 2022? I think he's going to end about 290. That but, sounds like a no to me. But you'll still take a 290. I mean, the league – here's – Here's the crazy part. Every year in my home league, I set my team batting average goal to 270 because that's usually what what wins the league, right? And if I'm close to that, I'll be happy because it'll put me in the top five. Last year, what won the league was 262. So batting averages, like the average MLB batting average last year was like a 243. So... Taking a 290 is pretty reasonable. You're about 50 points higher than the than the average, you know, hitter. I'll take that all day. Yep, and we had talked about it too preseason. Like, if you're going to take a shot maybe earlier on or you get someone who's going to be a drain on your batting average, we talked about Michael Brantley being the guy that you take late to basically even out that person's batting average. And Quan just might be the the another version of that here in 2022 now matt i'm just gonna hit you with a pretty point blank question i'm gonna let you run with it here because my answer is i have no freaking clue and i don't even want to try to take a stab at this so what the hell is happening with closers and ninth inning guys because i'll tell you what we're three or four days into the season i'm already sick of it already sick of it yeah um i don't know to be honest um we had that trade on opening day in which Taylor Rogers got sent from Minnesota to uh, San Diego. And so everybody was like, Ooh, does this mean Tyler Duffy's probably in line? I'm like, well, he'll probably get the first crack at it. Cause in before Taylor Rogers was there, Duffy was pretty good in the ninth inning with saves and whatever. Then he gets a crack at it. And he blows up. Then Jorge Alcala kind of, eh, and now the talk is Johan Duran, who everybody brought up as a starter, and now they're just going to switch him, I guess, to a bullpen guy, and maybe he gets the saves. But who the heck knows? Now, I switched. So after that deal, I switched Tyler Duffy into my lineup. He had been on my bench. Tony Santillon was on my active roster. I swapped them. First game of the season, what happens? Duffy blows up and... Santillon for the Reds gets the save. Now he hasn't gotten any saves. Liam Hendricks, opening day. White Sox are in a save situation. Who's on the mound in the ninth inning? Aaron Bummer. Like, why? Then they put Liam Hendricks in, I guess, the next day, and he he blew it, right? So, like, there goes your second-round closer that you drafted, uh, blowing his first shot at a save, which, by the way, wasn't opening day. Um, what else is going like, who the heck knows what's happening with Because Art Warren comes in for the Reds. He might be the closer now because he locked it down one day, I guess, you know, this is why I can't even say that drafting the lockdown closers made sense because I just talked about how Liam Hendricks didn't get a shot, right? Um, it's just like you just use all of your draft capital on solid starters and good bats and then go just grab any reliever you can think of and who knows they might wind up 
as the closer. Because I thought keeping Ian Kennedy was going to be a terrible decision. And now Mark Melanson looks like crap through spring training in the beginning of the season. And so now I might luck into some saves from Ian Kennedy. Joe Barlow, the guy that everybody thought might be the closer coming in to the season for the Rangers because he locked down saves in the second half of last year. On Saturday before opening day, it gets leaked that Joe Barlow is not even in the conversation for saves in Texas. Not even in the conversation. So, like, who the heck knows with what's going on with closers? Um, saves are, I mean, they're going down to begin with. And then who the hell knows who's going to get you any semblance of saves any given week? The only thing I know to do with closers at this point is I just go to fantasyalarm.com, look up the fantasy baseball closer grid. It is updated. So you pretty much at this point, based on how we're talking about the closer position, I wouldn't even look at the closer column. I would just look at the setup man column because probably chances are within a week, that's going to be the closer anyway, but just make sure you keep a good eye on uh, the closer grid as that gets updated. A lot of good information there. And that's really what you can be using for saves, speculative saves and anything like that. So boy, that's a finicky market, but Matt, to wrap up this episode, I'm going to ask you kind of point blank here. Quick questions. Your level of concern with these four particular players that I had to pick for you this week. So we're going to start off with my guy, Akil Badu, starting off 0 for 7 with three strikeouts and then not being in the lineup on Sunday. What is your level of concern with Badu through the first two or three games of the year? On a scale of 1 to 10, say 1 to 10. I mean, I'll, I'll keep around three. I mean, it's not that bad. Right, oh for seven. If this was June and he went for an over seven slump, we'd be talking about a two-game hitless streak, right? But because it's opening weekend and everybody wants their guys starting with, oh, he's got to have twenty steals and twenty homers before the end of the first week, or it's a disaster of a start. I'm not that concerned with Akil Badu right now. And speaking of relievers, we'll go to Colorado for Alex Colome, who. His velo is fine. Nothing really jumps off the page there. Now, he didn't get the save opportunity. He happened to come in um, before that. And, well, four hits, one earned run, allowed a couple of hard balls there. And Daniel Bard struck out the side to uh, pretty much close that game down for a stunning win for the Rockies. And Bard got the save there. So maybe Daniel Bard's the guy there. But one to ten with ten being uber concerned. What is your level of concern with Alex Colomay? <sighs> I mean, it was a weird fit to begin with going to Coors. So mm-hmm. I'm going to put it about a six and a half because I don't really think his stuff plays all that well in Coors. Um, breaking pitches tend to not do quite as well in Coors. And, you know, yeah, he was a solid closer last year, but so was Daniel Bard. So not entirely sure why they made the signing of Alex Colomay. I would say if you're looking at him as a setup guy who can get you some holds, I think you're fine. If you're looking at him as a closer, your level of concern has got to be six and a half or seven. I like that one there. Another starter will go to Detroit talking to Eduardo Rodriguez struggled in the spring. Velo was down. And then what do we see in his season debut? Fastball, Velo down. Sinker, down. Changeup, down. Slider, down. Generated just one whiff on his four-seam fastball. And overall, just five whiffs of the 41 swing. So Eduardo Rodriguez, some of the peripherals there aren't necessarily the greatest. 
his overall stat line, fine, four innings, four hits, three earned runs. But as I look here at his breakdown on Baseball Savant, there's a lot of little fire emojis, and that's not good when that's your pitcher looking there. So what is your level of concern here with Eduardo Rodriguez? Not that high. Again, it's the first start um, on abbreviated spring training. And if you look at his career stats and you break it down by month, April is always a rougher month for him. At like a four nine four ERA, then he gets better as the season goes on. Um, so I'm not overly concerned right now. He pitched well last year, um, and again, if you look at this similar thing last year with a normal, relatively normal spring training, his April numbers were still a tad higher. He's just a slower starting pitcher. His numbers will be there at the end of the you know at the end of the season. And he just gets better as things go on. So I'm not, I'm probably at about a three or a four right now for him. And then last but not least with the Dodgers, we have Julio Urias, much like Rodriguez, velo down across the board, only generated four whiffs. And when you look at his, his stat line against the Rockies, last just two innings, six hits, six, six runs, only three were earned, did allow one home runs, but no strikeouts through two innings. So it sounds like this level of concern is, Matt, you're a rather eternal optimist, and you're pretty optimistic about most of these guys here. But what about Julio Urias, your level of concern with the Los Angeles lefty? I'm more concerned about Urias um, because, and I know he's got similar things to Eduardo Rodriguez, but last year, you know, was his first year back from thoracic outlet syndrome. Okay, that's a pretty serious thing. The list of guys who have very good careers after that is not long at all. I'm not saying that was a blip for Urias. I'm simply saying that I'm a bit more concerned about him, given his injury history. Um, And it was a pretty decent drop in velo from where he was last year. I think it was more than three miles an hour off his fastball, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And the Rockies lineup is not great i mean i know it's course but the rockies lineup is not great there's not like your normal trevor story or nolan arenado or you know some other big bats in there so i am a bit more concerned with urias the dodgers already like to slow play their guys so any reason they have to you know kind of monitor innings on urias not not what you want if you have him so I'm probably at more of about a five and a half or six on Urias right now. Absolutely. And one last thing to go ahead and put a bow on this episode. Matt, what is your prediction for the MLB week or slate of games that lies ahead? My prediction is that Jazz Chisholm will actually hit against all of the lefties they face this week. Um, so that Donnie Baseball doesn't have to try to, you know, avoid another issue that arose on social media or answering questions about it to the press. So I think they're going to start playing jazz chism against lefties this week. I am going to go to the Milwaukee starters after their struggles in their opening start, Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff and Freddie Peralta. The three of them will only combine for one walk in their three combined starts this week. So it looks like barring rain, anything like that. Burns gets Baltimore, and then Woodruff and Peralta are probably staring down the barrel of facing the St. Louis Cardinals. So those are our predictions for the week that basically is coming up. 
We got Matt's level of concern on a bunch of different players. And next week, we'll be back to talk about much of the same stuff, news and notes, things to watch, injuries. If we get any transactions, who's up and coming. There's a lot of great content over at Fantasy Alarm and DFS Alarm. So make sure you're checking that out, whether you're a seasonal fanatic or a DFS player, play an underdog or prize pick. There's content for that. If you're doing well in baseball, take some of those winnings and use Matt's content for NASCAR and F1. Take those to the bank as well. And make sure you're checking out everything, perhaps most notably that darn closer grid that we got at fantasyalarm.com. So make sure you're checking that out and all of the great content. But for Matt Sells at The Sells Man on Twitter, I'm Colby Conway at Colby R. Conway, and we will see you next week.